Welcome to Spark. It's good to see you. Uh, if you don't know, my name is uh, Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Spark. And today it's a big day. It really is a big day because we are going to finish up in our series on the radical love of Jesus that is on display in the book of John. As you may remember, as we were going through it, it's a story of diversity and inclusion. It's a story of forgiveness and grace. And we started this story, this sermon series way back in April. And here we are, finally a half a year later, finishing this book, which, if you know, Luke took even longer. Both great books. It's quite a, uh, an amount of time that we spent in that book, but we think it is good and important. And one of the nice things about John 2 is it's very accessible uh, to the reader wherever you are in your faith journey. In fact, Pastor Danielle quoted N.T. Wright as saying, the book of John is like a pool that is safe enough for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. I don't know who you think you are, but you're in there somewhere. And we heard from City. City, if you're there, we miss seeing you. Uh, we had Kevin and Pastor Danielle and Pastor Omir and Pastor Marcus and Pastor Mark. And I got to preach too, which was a joy. And speaking for the teaching team, we hope that you enjoyed the sermon series as well. The Gospel of John, it starts fast, if you remember, with a huge new claim in the opening paragraph. And the astonishing claim is that Jesus not only spoke the Word of God, as had the prophets of old, but Jesus was in fact the Word of God. It's one of the features of John's Gospel that immediately catches the attention of the reader that John begins not with the first phase of Jesus' ministry as had Mark, nor with his birth as had Matthew and Luke, but with the Logos, the Word as the divine agent or medium of creation. Now, Paul, in his bolder reflections, had come close to this. He had. Paul wrote, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He said, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. But it is only with John that we see in precise words the concept of incarnation, of Jesus as the incarnation of God's creative agency, specifically articulated as never before, with an unexpected boldness in his opening words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. It is hard for us today to fully appreciate just how exceptional these words were when they were first written that Jesus was the embodiment of the mind and intention of God. In other words, the Word became flesh and lived among us, which was something totally unexpected and new, making a mind-blowing claim that Jesus, as God's Word, expressed what up till then was inexpressible and made them unknowable known. 
that it is the word of God that has been incarnated in Jesus, not just the creative power of God, not just the saving acts of God that had delivered Israel in the past, but the word of God, the creative and saving power of God in a rational form that would engage human intelligence and answer human puzzles and inquiries. Now, it is natural to assume that the Gospel of John is just like the other three Gospels contained in the New Testament. Natural because they are telling the story of the same life, the ministry of Jesus. But when the Gospel of John is put side by side with the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is, it's almost immediately becomes evident that John is different from the others. While in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parallels are really close, very close. In fact, other than the two opening chapters of Matthew and Luke, the degree of overlap in all three are almost word-for-word parallels. But with John, it is different. John is telling the same story of the same person, but he's telling it differently. For example... Early on, John indicates that Jesus' miracles should be regarded as signs. In other words, it's a symbol that reveals something special about Jesus, telling us that there's something significant about this miracle worker, and he's given many titles in this book, that he is Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God, a rabbi, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Israel, and the long-awaited Messiah. In the first sign recorded, the very first miracle, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding, which on a practical manner, and especially in that day, would have shown Jesus' deep compassion and love for others because he truly saved the honor and the prestige of the bride and the bride's family because you can't have a wedding and run out of food and drinks. And on a deeper symbolic level, the first readers of John, they would have seen this miracle as a sign because his actions would have aligned with the words of Isaiah who said that when the messianic kingdom comes... It would be like this huge party where people are rejoicing with an abundance of meat and great wine for all people, all people. That's what it says. John highlights seven signs in his book. And this includes the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding, but also the healing of the government official's son from a great distance, the healing of a disabled man who picked up his mat and walked, the feeding of the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing the man born blind, and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And here's what is important. The people, they responded to these signs. John writes, what Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. He writes, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. And he writes, He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him.'" 
You see, John wasn't just telling these stories of mighty works performed by Jesus, but was drawing out the significance of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And he regularly attached long discourses, long conversations to his accounts of these miracles performed by Jesus. So, for example, the feeding of the 5,000 leads into the great bread of life discourse. The healing of the blind man leads into Jesus speaking about, the blind, about blindness and sight. And the raising of Lazarus is integrated with the discourse on eternal life. When John is compared with the synoptics, a striking feature is that John contains no real parables, which are key in the synoptics. Did you see that? And in John, the nearest thing is when John is recorded as saying things like, I am the vine, which Pastor Danielle covered. In fact, it is the I am sayings that seem to function as John's equivalent to the synoptic parables. And like the signs, John highlights seven I am statements in his book that would have shocked the religious leaders of the day to the point of anger and conflict. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth in the life. I am the true vine. Get this. It is a striking fact that these I am statements appear only in the book of John. According to theologian James Dunn, it is almost impossible to believe that there were such sayings in the Jesus tradition, sayings that Jesus was remembered uttering about himself, and yet all three synoptic evangelists ignored them completely. Much of the obvious explanation that, is that these were sayings attributed to Jesus by John, not because he was remembered as uttering them, but because they brought out the significance of Jesus in his ministry like nothing else in the Jesus tradition confirming the significance of his ministry and miracles. So the obvious conclusion to draw with regard to John is that unlike the authors of the synoptics, he was not trying to give a more or less straightforward account of Jesus' ministry. Rather, he sought to bring out the significance of Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection. And John is truly unusual among the gospel writers in that he indicates his purpose in writing his gospel explicitly in a brief paragraph in John 20. The scripture says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Do you hear that? John wants his readers to know that Jesus is the Son of God. And one of the more remarkable features of John's gospel is that Jesus, is that Jesus refers to God as Father in it much more frequently than he does in the synoptics. The statistics are striking. He refers to God as Father three times in Mark, eight times in Luke, 35 times in Matthew, and 100 times in John. Clearly, this was important to John. It is even more striking that in John's gospel, Jesus is shown as fulfilling 
in effect, superseding other central features of Israel's history and religion. For instance, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, the author explains. He was speaking of the temple of the body. Those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham, I was, or I am. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. These are powerful and mind-bending claims, both then and now, that Jesus is Israel's long-expected Messiah and that he indeed is the Son of God. And this brings us to our final chapter. That was a summary. We're going into the final chapter of John here, chapter 21, which many contemporary interpreters have concluded was not part of the fourth gospel as it was originally written. They argue that John 20 reached not only a suitable but a triumphant conclusion that Jesus has risen, he has appeared, his ascension has been dealt with, the spirit he promised was given, and his great commission was uttered. What more is there to say? It seems that anything else might be anticlimactic. Even another appearance is unlikely to convince anyone not already convinced by the evidence already displayed in John 20. You see, it was the conclusion in that sense. And yet, Sandra Schneiders argues that the purpose of chapter 21 is to bring the gospel account to a close by transferring the reader's attention from the experience of the first disciples with the historical Jesus to the experience of the contemporary church with the glorified Jesus. That is from the story of those who saw to the story of those who believe without being seen. I believe chapter 21 is to be understood as a narrative presentation. In other words, it's a story of a faith experience that is real and symbolic, where Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples, which was the third time he had shown himself to his disciples after his resurrection. You should know that the number three has biblical significance. It's symbolic. Three is the number for completion, a kind of perfection. And let's remember that Jesus rose on the third day. And so now here in this story, he shows himself to the disciples for the third time. There are two parts of chapter 21 that I want to highlight for you. And both parts work together to emphasize the heart and radical love of Jesus. The first is a story where the disciples go fishing. The story takes place at the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, which is the same shore where Jesus fed the 5,000. The story would have been very familiar for the disciples. It should have resonated loudly with them because this story is similar to another story that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry, which we see in Luke chapter 5. Jesus said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came in and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Simon Peter and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men, people. So they pulled their boats on shore, left everything, and followed him. The apostle Matthew has a different take on it. It's a little bit more succinct. He says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. This is an amazing story. These fishermen, they listened to Jesus, they did what he said, and they had this miraculous catch of fish. And it changed their view of who Jesus was. They could now see that this was no ordinary man. So they made a radical decision to follow Jesus. They left their nets and followed him. And so here in chapter 21, we see the disciples have gone fishing again, and they've caught nothing. And at the command of a stranger on the shore, they cast their nets to the right side of the boat and made it another enormous catch. And just like in Luke 5, after this surprising huge catch, they recognize that there's something special about this person on the shore. John says, it's the Lord. And Peter gets so excited about this news that he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore while the other disciples come to Jesus in the boat. There is one verse in this story that I find very interesting. It's verse 11, and it may have huge implications, huge meaning, but it's rarely talked about. Verse 11 says, Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. The question for verse 11 is, why does John get so specific on the number of fish? Did the disciples actually catch 153 fish? If that's the case, I'm not sure why this detail is so important. But maybe, did John write about 153 fish as a symbolic value? Now that's a possibility. N.T. Wright says that it may, by a complex piece of mathematics, stand for the completeness of the catch that the apostles will make when they take the gospel to the world. That doesn't mean that there weren't 153 fish, only that now, by virtually everything John says, may bear different levels of meaning. You should know that numerous symbolic interpretations of this number have been offered in the course of history with some more convincing than others. Theologian D.A. Clark writes that throughout the history of the church, the most popular solution to this number 153 is something advanced by St. Jerome, who who in his commentary on Ezekiel 47 ties this miraculous catch of 153 fish with a prophetic vision of the stream of living water that flows from the temple to the Dead Sea, which begins to teem with life. 
Jerome cites the naturalist Opian, who claims that there are 153 different species of fish, implying that this catch of fish, affected by Jesus' command, becomes an acted parable of the fruitful mission of the church that draws all human beings without distinction. All human beings without distinction. Now, we know today there are more than 153 species of fish. In fact, there are about 32,000. But the absolute number is not the important thing. It's what the number means. And for Jerome, he interpreted 153 as representing all of humanity. That is, all tribes, all nations, all races, all sexes, all ages, all people are welcomed into the kingdom of God. This may be the reason why the Apostle John says in verse 11 that the net was not torn. The net was not torn, meaning that the gospel net will never break. Why? Because there's room for all. Every person, everyone is welcome into the kingdom of God. The second part of the chapter that I want to highlight is an encounter between Jesus and Peter. You have to know that Peter at this point, must have been feeling pretty awful, maybe angry and probably deeply ashamed for how he denied Jesus, not once, but three times, and everyone knew it. This apostle who is known for his fierce loyalty to Jesus, the apostle who said he would lay down his life for Jesus, the apostle that cut off the servant's ear in an attempt to prevent the arrest of Jesus, this apostle failed when things got hot. And so this follow-on encounter with Jesus is to make Peter whole again, to restore him, to forgive him, and to get him back into action, back into actively caring for others. The text says, So when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This scene between Jesus and Peter is what N.T. Wright describes as one of the most spectacular interchanges in the whole Bible, perhaps in all of literature. The most remarkable thing about it is that by way of forgiveness, Jesus gives Peter a commission, a job to do, a calling, and not just a title, but a command to be a person that follows the way of Jesus by loving and caring for others. When Peter professes his love for Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, well, that's all right then. He says, feed my lambs. Look after my sheep. Feed my sheep. These are verbs, not nouns. These are words of action. That's what Jesus wants. The three questions from Jesus correspond to Peter's three denials. 
Three for completeness, yes, but three also for a reminder. You see, Jesus goes to where the pain is, as he so often does. He takes Simon Peter away from the others, and he asks the question that goes to the heart of it all. Do you love me? Actually, the words Jesus uses for love vary slightly. The first two times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape. But get this, when Peter replies, the Greek word he uses for love is different to the one Jesus uses in the first two questions. He uses the Greek word phileo. Then in the third question, Jesus uses the word phileo for love that Peter himself has been using. Question, is there significance to the use of these two Greek words for love, agape and phileo? That's a great question. And maybe it does or maybe it doesn't have significance. And many theologians have come up with creative explanations for why these two different Greek words were used. And ultimately, they suggest something along these lines that we as humans naturally love in a phileo type of love. But we should always strive to love with agape. You've heard this, right? Right? I grew up believing that the Greek word agape is a godly love, an unconditional love, and the highest form of love. And the word phileo was more of a human love, a love amongst friends, a love that signified affection like a kiss. So the word phileo has been understood to be good, it is still love, but is less of a true love than agape. Kind of like the difference between regular love and true love and what I believe is Kevin's favorite movie, The Princess Bride. <laughs> now, I don't want to shock you or get hung up on this, but I've done some research on this, and I've looked at Scripture, and I'm finding that the labels we give these two Greek words and the resulting meanings implied in this story just might not be true despite what you may have been told in the church you grew up in and the church that I grew up in, where we were also told that the earth was created in literally seven days and that the eye of a needle was referring to some special interest for a camel to literally get on its knees and crawl in. Not true. In many cases, these two Greek words are used interchangeably as synonyms. And yes, the Greek word agape shows up in John 3.35 where the text says, the father loves the son. But phileo shows up in John 5.20 where the text says the same thing, that the father loves the son. Same author, same basic sentence, but different Greek word choices. So for today, I'm saying, and I may be wrong, but I'm going to stick with my favorite religious friend, N.T. Wright, on this who says that Jesus and Peter's use of agape and phileo is probably not important. However, what matters is that the question is asked and answered, and even more that the answer earns each time not a pat on the back, but a command, a fresh challenge to live like Jesus, who cares for people, all people, because he is the good shepherd. And we learned about the good shepherd from Pastor Mark. Where Jesus, as the good shepherd, has the task of leading and feeding his sheep and lambs, guiding them to and from the pasture, and keeping them safe from predators. And this shepherd, he knows them, and they know him, and he will lay down his life for the sheep. 
And get this, this is key. This is important. The good shepherd is well aware that he has other sheep that are not in this one sheep pen. And he must bring them too because they, that, because they matter. They are loved. And they will also listen to his voice and respond because they know him, making one big flock with one shepherd just as we have one kingdom, the kingdom of God, where everyone is welcome. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That includes people like Nicodemus who came in the night to search for truth. Outsiders like the Samaritan woman who Jesus visits at a well. A marginalized man who was lame. A woman caught in adultery who Jesus defends. A man born blind that others assume is blind because his parents have sinned. A woman that pours perfume on Jesus' feet because she recognizes his glory. A woman named Mary Magdalene who was the first to see Jesus after his resurrection. And a man named Peter who rejected Jesus when things got hot. You see, for Jesus, all tribes, all nations, all races, all sexes, all ages, all people are welcome into the kingdom of God. We learn this in the book of John. But speaking very frankly, we don't see this playing out well in the American church, and we can do better. We must do better. David Gushy talks a lot about this in his book, focusing on evangelicals. But in fairness, there are lots of other churches, other denominations, and leaders, in my opinion, who are also harming the reputation of God. David says, ex-evangelicals are leaving the church based on what they believe to be specific offenses against them personally or against their family and friends and specific experiences of trauma that have left lasting damage like clergy sexual abuse, sexist exclusion and mistreatment, and every kind of indignity against gay, lesbian, and trans people. David Gushy mentions the damage caused by so many churches with an emphasis on being the morality police, as well as the unhealthy relationship between conservative politics and the church, which creates exclusion and division and fear and ultimately makes it harder for people to hear the good news of Jesus, instead making the overall church smaller, whiter, and wealthier. This is not the book of John. Friends, the marks of the kingdom of God include inspiring people to live the way of Jesus toward justice, deliverance, peace, healing, inclusion of exiles and outcasts in the community, and joy. That is in the book of John, where we see the radical nature of Jesus' love on display. It's a story of diversity and inclusion where everyone is welcomed and loved. It's a story of forgiveness with second chances and 200th chances where you don't ever lose your place and you are never finished. It's a story that reveals Jesus as Israel's long-expected Messiah and that he is indeed the Son of God. As we now go into a time of communion, this focus on diversity and inclusion that we see here in the book of John of including all people is what we see at the table of God. This is the table Christ sets over and over in Scripture And at that table, 
Jesus has wisdom to share and purpose to call people to. But more than that, he had humanity to affirm. He allowed people the dignity of being seen and heard and known. And yet you don't earn a spot there at the table and you don't fail and find yourself out of it. Just ask Peter. This is the table that Jesus sets. It's the table of forgiveness and grace and love. It's a table where you commune with Jesus, the Son of God. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome to the table.